a little bit differently in our order today. And so now is our time to spend some time looking into the Word of God. And uh, on this Palm Sunday, I'd like to ask, I'd like to discuss questions. Um, Start out with some silly questions to ponder. Have you ever wondered why 24 hours, seven day a week, supermarkets have locks on their doors? Um, Would a fly without wings be called a walk? Um, Why do we park in a driveway and drive in a parkway? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? Uh, Why is the third hand on a watch called the second hand? Why is it that night falls but it's day that breaks? Um, One child asked their dad, Dad, what did it feel like on the last day of being a child? I like that for a question. Another child asked mom, how do I know I'm real and not just a dream of someone else? <laughs> At a Cub Scout meeting I was with, with my son, I uh, told the boys in my den, I said, now the only question that's a bad question is the one you don't ask. And one little boy looked at me and said, what question is that? <laughs> Well, this Palm Sunday, we've been thinking about the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem and he allowed the people to proclaim that he was Messiah, that he was the King of the Jews. Um, But, you know, as Jesus presented himself to the Jewish people, this very act raised some questions. Because you'll remember many of the Jewish people thought that Messiah would come as a military ruler with military might and strength. And isn't the Messiah supposed to overthrow the oppressors of the Jews, which at that time was the Romans? And wasn't he supposed to set up his kingdom and rule in the temple? And it doesn't look like that's what Jesus is doing. I thought he was going to be the Messiah. What, what They had questions about that. And so John records some interaction between Jesus and the crowd following the triumphal entry. And some of that conversation is recorded for us in chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. And Jesus is talking to the crowd in these verses. And in verse 24, he talks about a seed dying before it can bloom and produce fruit. What does he mean by that? Then in verse 32, he tells the people that he must be lifted up from the earth. Well, what does he mean by he must be lifted up from the earth? And a few days later, Jesus draws away from the crowds and begins to talk with his disciples. And in chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, he makes a very startling comment. He says to them in verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Peter, known for being forward and even impatient, interrupts Jesus and says, Now wait a minute, Jesus, let's back up just a little bit. 
He says, uh, we have some questions about this statement. Where are you going anyway? <laughs> and Jesus says, well, I'm going. You can't come right now. You will follow me, but you can't follow me now. You'll follow me afterwards. And Peter says, well, when? After what? Well, we know that he was talking about the cross and the resurrection, but the disciples didn't know that then, and so they had questions. Peter said, I want to follow you now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you, he says in verse 37. And Jesus says in verse 38, well, Peter, you will lay down your life for me. And Peter thought, what do you mean by that? What do you mean I will lay down my life for you? I mean, this conversation, <laughs> there's more questions than answers, aren't there? Jesus kept saying that he's going to depart and they can't go with him, but they will later. He said that they will go afterward, but they don't know what afterward means. After what? Actually, they don't know where he is going, so they don't know where they will be going. And they don't know how they're going to go wherever it is they're supposed to go. So finally, Peter says, listen, Jesus, just be honest with me. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, what? I'm going to what? Imagine what the disciples were thinking. And so this wonderful experience of Jesus coming into Jerusalem with all the crowds waving palm branches and proclaiming him king in fulfillment of Zechariah's promise, but he doesn't be, he's not acting like a king, and he's not answering all of their questions. Let me pause for a moment and ask you, what questions do you have for Jesus today? Is there something that you're just troubled about? Is there something that you're carrying with you? Or is there something that you're asking God and saying, God, I just don't understand this? You know, I acknowledge you as my king, but you're not answering all my questions. I've got lots of questions. Maybe some of them are about curiosity about how the Bible fits together. or Maybe there are questions about how things have turned out in your life. Maybe there's some life and death questions that you're carrying around with you. What do we do with all of our questions? What, what did the disciples do with all their questions? What, how did Jesus handle all of their questions? Because he knew that he couldn't answer all of them because the cross had yet to happen. And so what Jesus does is he gives us a principle in chapter 14, verse 1. This is what we do with our questions. We trust him. Because Jesus says... Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Trust me with your questions. Literally, this means stop being upset. <laughs> stop, stop getting all uptight. This morning, I spent half an hour pacing the floors of the house I'm renting. Scott, don't be upset. Don't be upset. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Apply it to my life. and God, continue to give me your peace. And, and just to be able to experience God's peace and to be able to, to say, Jesus, you said don't be troubled. Believe in me. Believe, all, believe in God. Believe also in me. And, 
And boy, God is the creator. He is the sovereign of all of life. He is good and he is loving and he is just. And, and just to meditate on those things, oh, it brings, it brings peace so that the questions are not as important anymore. And Jesus says, believe in me, trust in me. Prior to this occasion, the disciples must remember where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I will satisfy you. Your questions will not be that important. Come to me. I will satisfy you. I am the light of the world. I'll bring light to the darkness of your soul. When you have the darkness of questions and burdens, I am the light of the world. I am the door. Abundant life is yours. Walk through me. I am God. Trust in me. Believe in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. Trust me. Believe in me, Jesus says. And then you remember at the tomb of Lazarus, he said to Mary and and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet he shall live. Trust me. Believe in me. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled with all the questions of life. Trust me. But I want you to know that Jesus does answer a lot of our questions. In fact, he answers the most important questions that have ever been asked by philosophers in this world. And so I'd like to review those three questions, what I think are the, the questions in life. And in this passage in John 14, Jesus specifically answers those questions. And when we focus on the answers to these questions, they wrap all of our other questions up and help us to trust him. What are those questions? Well, the first question is this. Is there life after death, and what is life after death like? Boy, has that been a question that people have been asking for ages and ages and ages and ages. Now, one of the answers that our secular uh, friends in this world say to this question, there is no life after death. Uh, After we die, we just stop, just Cease to exist. You know, Walt Disney was really good at, uh, maybe not Walt Disney himself, but uh, Disney Productions and The Lion King. Remember that circle of life story you talk about? You know, people just live and they die and and then they go into the ground and then then someone else comes along and, and then they die and then they go in the ground and there's just a circle of life. I'm not very satisfied with that. I don't necessarily like thinking that my eternal destiny is to be fertilizer. God didn't make us that way. There's got to be more to it than that. Our Eastern religious friends say that we die and then we become merged with the cosmic force and become one with the universe and cease to exist as individuals and we're just kind of assumed into the the energy of the universe. It's an interesting thought, but there's no evidence that anything like that actually happens. It's just 
a man-made thought. So that doesn't give me much comfort. Actually, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary of that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But what does Jesus tell us in verse 2 of chapter 14? He says, I'll tell you about life after death. He says in verse 2, put your finger around the text, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. You know, there's, there's a place in God's heaven. Now, this word dwelling place, um, some people think this means literal mansions. You know, I've got a mansion up on the housetop, and always sing that. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's what it really means. Um, I'm not sure that in the new heaven and the earth we're going to need a house. I mean, there's not going to be any bugs that are going to bite me, and there's not going to be any animals that are predators. There's not going to be any storms that I've got to, in heaven. So I don't know if I need to have a shelter from the elements. The elements are going to be perfect. Um, sorry, I don't mean to, <laughs> you know, to crush your ideas of heaven, you know. But, you know, I think what this means is that dwelling places in God's presence is what this word really means. There's going to be a place for us in heaven where we belong. And where we belong, it's going, to be, it's going to be ours. It's going to be a place in the presence of God. We'll be alive. We'll have relationship with God and with other believers. We'll have meaningful activities in the new heaven and the new earth. And I believe, yes, we'll have a dwelling place, but there's no really specific description of it in the Bible other than the fact that it'll be perfect. <laughs> Amen. It's perfect. And we will be alive in this perfect place. And then look what verse 2 says. Jesus says, there's this dwelling place in heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go and prepare it for you. Here Jesus refers to his resurrection and his ascension. I'm going to go. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to ascend. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to prepare this special place that we really can't discuss too much of the specifics because you won't be able to understand it anyway because it's heavenly stuff. But what you do know is I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thirteen times in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus told his disciples that he would be put to death and rise from the dead. Thirteen times. He appeared alive after the cross to the women at the grave. Then he appeared to the disciples, some of them three times. Thomas, the skeptic, was invited to put his hand in Jesus' hand in his side. I don't think he ever did. He was invited to, but I think he was just... No, Jesus, I don't need to do that. You're right. You're there. I, I believe my Lord and my God. Maybe he did, but the text doesn't say he did. Then he appeared to the travelers on the road to Emmaus. Then he appeared to over 500 just as he was, before he was ascended into heaven. And most of these people were alive when Matthew, Mark, Luke wrote their Gospels. And so, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote all these things about Jesus' resurrection and ascension and it didn't happen, those 500 people would come up and say, that never happened. I was there. But no, they say, yes, it did happen. I was there. So we know that when Jesus says, I am going, I'm going into heaven, 
I'm going to prepare a place that's just for you, a dwelling place in the presence of God. I am going there to prepare a place, and it will be yours. And when you come to heaven after you die, we will say, welcome home. Won't that be great when Jesus and God says, welcome home? This is your eternal dwelling place in my presence with me. Ah. Jesus answers the question, is there life after death? And yes, there is. Not only did he say he was going to rise from the dead, but he did rise from the dead. That's the first question that people have been asking for generations. The second question is, if there is life after death, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, some people believe that everyone goes to heaven. Some people believe that Jesus died to save everyone. Well, his death certainly was sufficient to save everyone. Of course it was. Um, some say that, well, therefore, everyone is forgiven and then everyone goes to heaven. God just, just takes everyone to heaven. But this totally overlooks moral responsibility. Isn't there such a thing as moral responsibility? Yes. It overlooks any idea of justice. Is God a God of justice? The answer is, well, of course he's a God of justice. It totally overlooks the fact that sin is an offense against the holy God. And God is a holy God. And sin against him is, is an eternal offense. So just to say, well, Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone, therefore everyone goes to heaven, that's not consistent with who God is. Then there are works-based religions. A good one is Islam. Good works and holiness. Keeping a strict prayer. Following uh, the writings just perfectly. But if you talk to Islam scholars and you read the literature, you never know if you did it well enough. And you'll hear him say, well, we believe that Allah is gracious, and so we trust him to do the right thing, but we don't have any idea whether I'm going to make it. But, you know, I, I just, I just, I hope, I hope Allah is gracious. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and many other groups that are Christian in name require a life of obedience and legalistic adherence to rituals and laws and ceremonies. How do you know if you did it well enough? How do we get to heaven? Well, Jesus answers that for us in verse 3. He said, For those who believe in me, I will return... And I'll take you, <laughs> so that where I am, you may be also. I'll come and escort you. I'll come and pick you up, and I'll carry you. <laughs> That's how you get to heaven. I'll carry you. I'll take you. 
but we must believe. And what does it mean to believe? For those who believe in me, verse 3 says. I remember I was talking with a couple who wanted me to perform their wedding, and, and I always share the gospel with people that come in and aren't part of our church. And I shared the truth of the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And this young man looked at me and he says, I'll pay for my own sins. I don't need Jesus to pay for my sins. And I thought to myself, um, you can try, but it'll never be good enough. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to pay for your sins. The eternal God, Jesus, is going to pay the eternal penalty of sin before an eternal God and satisfy our sins. And we receive forgiveness as we believe by faith. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, I will come and escort you to heaven. I'll come and escort you to the place that I prepared for you. Now, let's step back for just a moment. This comment from Jesus is where the Apostle Paul was inspired to teach about what we know as the rapture. And the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And let me read these verses for you. It will help you understand, where did Paul get this idea of rapture anyway? Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. But we have a hope, and here it is. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He is going to return. Verse 15. According to the Lord's word. Well, what word? John 14:3. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and escort you there. So Paul says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the promise. Once we die in this life, Jesus will escort us and take us to heaven. But if we are still alive when Jesus returns, he's still going to come down, take us up into the clouds, and he's still going to escort us to heaven. That's what the Lord's word says in John chapter 14. So how do we get there? Well, Thomas speaks up, and he says, You know, Lord, I really appreciate your lesson about going to be with the Father and you coming to take us there, but there's still a bit that's unclear. We have no idea of the specifics. How can I know the way? Here's what Thomas was thinking. Um, Say you're here at church and someone invites you to their home for dinner after church. So they shake hands and say, we'd love you to come over for dinner. Um, be there at uh, 12, 15, 12, 30 or so. We'll see you there. Boom, out the door. <laughs> there you go. Uh, where do you live? Uh, how do I get there? You know, see, that's how Thomas felt. 
Thomas felt Jesus went into this long explanation, gave us all this assurance, and he told us about how he's going to come and escort us, but he still didn't tell us where he was going and how we were going to get there. And so Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now notice, and this is the key. This is the gospel. Jesus doesn't show us the way. He doesn't tell us the way. He doesn't point to the truth. He doesn't simply give us life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. I think this refers to knowing Jesus personally. I think this is referring to walking with him, talking with him, having him live within us, experiencing his presence, a daily, moment-by-moment abiding in him, drawing our life's sustenance from him. As the song says, you are the air I breathe. I am. You see, it's not, it's not, I tell you, I show you, although he did both, but the real way is I am. Come to me. Trust me. Believe me. You see, these first two questions, is there a heaven, is there life after death, what it's like, and how do I get there? They're all summarized by David in Psalm 23, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? We will. But this incredible passage still leaves one question unanswered. One question unanswered. What if we fail? What if we blow it while we're on this earth? What do we do with our sinfulness. Sure, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I believe he's going to come and escort me to heaven. But in the meantime, what do I do with my sinfulness? Well, I think Jesus answers that question as well. It's a serious question. Peter was consumed with that question. Peter was going to deny Jesus three times and and put his life in priority over Jesus and look out for himself. And Actually, that's what you and I do, isn't it? We put ourselves in front of God. So what do we do when we sin? What do we do when we deny Jesus? Well, every other religious system suggests that we have to do something in order to even the score. But as we've already suggested, we can only hope that we've done enough. And some say, well, since there's no life, we'll just eat, drink, and be merry. Just live it up. But we know our conscience, our conscience just doesn't let us do that. We know there's something there. So the gospel tells us what we do in the meantime. And in the meantime, it's not because of what we do, but it's because of what he has done and it's on the cross of Jesus Christ where he paid the penalty for our failures 
that even when we sin, even when Peter denied Jesus, even when we fail him 70 times, seven times, there's forgiveness that is found in the cross of Christ. And here's the punchline. Jesus is the only one who can make such provision. Verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in our culture, this statement stirs up the ire of many, doesn't it? I mean, people say, well, you know, that's judgmental, that's narrow, that's, you're a bigot if you say he's the only way. I'd like to suggest you to think of this in a different way. Instead of this statement being negative, think of it as being extremely gracious. Nobody else offers heaven as a gift. Nobody. Secular humanists don't. Islam doesn't. Hindus don't. Nobody does. The only one who offers salvation by grace through faith is Jesus. He's the only one who offers to pay your penalty. What religion in the world tells us that God pays the penalty for our sins? Every other religion laughs when they say that. God paying the penalty for our sins? That's backwards. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He's the only one. Who did it? He's the only one who did it. And that stirs up within us a love for him. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who offers grace and offer he does. And he says, anyone, anyone, anyone who will may come. Come, come. Only Jesus provides heaven as a gift of his grace. Everyone else either denies the reality or has strings attached. Jesus has no strings attached. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. And if we accept his offer, we have confidence that we will have eternal life with Jesus in a place that he's prepared for us, in the presence of God. And we have the assurance that in Christ, there will be a day when he will come and escort us up to be with himself. And when we stand before the pearly gates, if there is such a thing, (laughs) I don't know where we got that idea, but if there are pearly gates... And if we stand before the pearly gates and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? You know what's going to happen? Our escort, Jesus, is going to put his arm around our shoulder and he's going to say, she's with me. She's with me. He's with me. He's with me. And God's going to say, welcome home, dear children. So what do we do with our questions today? Well, may I suggest instead of focusing on our questions, let's focus on the answer. Because Jesus Christ is the answer. And if you are looking for answers, 
why look what anyone why look anywhere else? The invitation is open. Come to Jesus. And what a perfect time to do that because we are about to remember the cross which made it all possible. Now the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that the night before Jesus was betrayed, during the Passover celebration, which we're going to learn about tomorrow, we're going to find Christ in this Passover celebration. It's amazing the prophetic power of the Passover celebration. And when Jesus shared the Passover celebration, he changed it. He changed the significance. No longer does the Passover celebration look forward. Now Jesus says, I want to replace the Passover celebration with a new celebration that looks back. And the cross is the event that happened in time where Jesus says it's finished. And what is finished is... The penalty has been paid, and the offer of grace has been made. Whosoever will, come. If you're here today and you've got any doubt, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, you know, I've been, I've been looking all kinds of places for the answer to my questions of is there life after death and what's it like and how do I get there and what if I commit things that are wrong and I realize today that that you are the answer to all three of those questions and so I confess my own sinfulness I stand before you broken humble I confess my sin, ask you to forgive me, come into my life. Give me, give me the Holy Spirit who brings new life. Work in my heart and life. Give me the assurance that he who has the Son of God has life. And if you're a Christian and you've been walking with God for a long time and there's been something that's been nagging you and you've been disobedient, now's a perfect time for you to come before God and say, Lord, I know just like when Peter denied Christ three times, I, I deny you every time I do this sin. You forgave him, and I know you'll forgive me. So I confess my sinfulness and ask for your forgiveness. Restore me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. If you're walking with Jesus in any way, this is where you need to be before the cross in communion where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and when he gave it to his disciples, he said, Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Beloved, this is what we get to do right now. We get to remember Jesus. Let's rejoice in the remembrance of the great power that's given us eternal life in Christ. Those who are going to help distribute the elements